Thomas pulling away over the final 150 meters. Had to work for it. She was pushed over the first 350 meters. Thomas wins the NCAA championship. Headed a very close for second. On Thursday, March 17th, 2022, University of Pennsylvania senior Leah Thomas won an NCAA championship in the 500-yard freestyle. It was a controversial and historic victory that reignited a nationwide debate about sports and gender identity. Leah Thomas. And Leah Thomas. Called Leah Thomas. Leah Thomas. Thomas is the first transgender woman to win an NCAA swimming title, but not the first to win an NCAA title, as hurdler Cece Telfer won a Division II track championship in 2019. Thomas swam on the men's team at UPenn for three years prior to beginning her transition. Trans athletes are inspired by her victory. I think that it means the world, honestly, like to, to, it, if I would have seen that, I think the, be, the best way to put it is if, if my 12 to 15 year old self would have seen that, it may have changed my journey 100%. And, and I think that that's the most incredible thing. But on the other side, some argue that successful trans athletes are taking opportunities from other athletes, especially cisgender women. That fairness and the equality can be enforced uh, on behalf of our girls and our women athletes. And so one of the reasons why I think this has become um, an issue is because we've seen, particularly in other states, you would have these blatantly unfair track races and all these other things where these girls train and then they end up not being able to advance to compete in state or, or what have you. Leah Thomas did not ask to be a figurehead, but her competition and success thrust her into the limelight. And she may have indirectly or directly caused policy changes at levels above and below college sports. I'm Carl Winter. On this special final episode of Sports Waves, we break it down. The NCAA's updated policy on transgender student-athletes, new state laws limiting and restricting their participation, and the crux of the nationwide debate. Note that on this episode, transgender refers to a person whose sense of personal identity and gender does not correspond with their birth sex while cisgender relates to a person whose sense of personal identity and gender does correspond with their birth sex. Occasionally, we shorten transgender to just trans and cisgender to just cis. On January 19, 2022, the NCAA updated its policy for transgender student-athletes. The new policy, quote, calls for transgender participation for each sport to be determined by the policy for the national governing body of that sport, unquote, which is different than past NCAA guidelines, which set standards for testosterone thresholds. Now they simply defer to the national governing body of each individual sport's rules. For example, if you were a transcollegiate gymnast, you would have to follow USA Gymnastics trans policy, which does not require hormone treatment. For a transcollegiate basketball player, they would first look to USA Basketball. But USA Basketball does not have a policy, so the next step is to look at the international governing body, in this case FIBA. FIBA's policy requires trans women to undergo hormone treatment to get their testosterone level below 10 nanomoles per liter for at least 12 months before they can compete as a woman. 
The only reason Leah Thomas could compete at the NCAA championships this year is because the NCAA chose to make the new policy take effect next season for swimming. Otherwise, USA Swimming's policy involves 36 months of hormone replacement therapy prior to competition, making it the only national governing body to require such a long period of hormone treatment. Thomas had not yet reached 36 months of hormone treatment. So what do all these policies mean, and how would they apply to a collegiate student-athlete? Let's look at it through the lens of Pepperdine. Pepperdine has never had an out transgender student-athlete compete on its Division I teams to our knowledge. It's certainly not the only school in that position. Most schools have not had a trans student-athlete. If a trans student-athlete wanted to come to Pepperdine or transitioned while at Pepperdine, what would it look like? I went to our Pepperdine Athletics NCAA compliance expert to figure it out. So Amanda Kurtz, Associate um, Director of Athletics, uh, Senior Women Administrator, and it would be she and her. Amanda wrote the new Pepperdine Athletics Transgender Participation Policy, which was added to the Pepperdine Student-Athlete Handbook in 2022. Yeah, we would be very supportive of a student that either came in as transgender or transitioned while they're in school and, and help them to meet those requirements to be able to compete. Um, in their sport, absolutely. The policy that Amanda wrote is essentially a carbon copy of the NCAA policy, simply stating that Pepperdine will follow the NCAA rules. It is bare bones, and it is placed on the final page, page 87 of the handbook. But it is new. Because there's no point in reinventing the wheel. I was wondering about how Pepperdine would make sure its student-athletes were in compliance with the rules of national governing bodies, how often they would have to test testosterone levels, and how they would test those levels. Pepperdine Associate Director of Athletics Kevin Wright, the department's expert on sports medicine, wrote to me in an email that the testing itself is not difficult logistically. He wrote, quote, The how part is easy. Send the athlete for a required blood draw and review the report with our team physician, unquote. He also wrote, quote, It is so new that we are awaiting final guidance from the NCAA, unquote. According to the updated NCAA policy, Kevin's sports medicine team in the athletic department would need to test and document a trans student-athlete's sports-specific testosterone levels three different times during their season, the beginning, the middle, and four weeks before the sports championship selections. It's, a, it's somewhat of a challenging kind of space. We don't really know, to be honest. Um, I mean, our question, to be honest, was... How do you know if someone is transgender? So Amanda, Kevin, and Pepperdine Athletics are open to a trans student athlete competing for the waves and would essentially figure it out as necessary. The next question is whether a trans person would be hesitant to attend a faith-based institution to play sports in the first place. Pepperdine's track record on LGBTQ issues is not stellar. In 2014, Princeton Review ranked Pepperdine one of the most unfriendly LGBTQ universities in the United States. Two lesbian women's basketball players sued the school for discrimination in 2014, though a jury ruled against them in 2017. Students today are still attempting to remove the second clause of the sexual relationships policy of the Student Code of Conduct, which states that marriage is between husband and wife, on the grounds of discrimination and inconsistency, according to a May 23, 2021 article in the graphic. So I asked a trans person at Pepperdine about transitioning at a Christian university. So my name is Tony Lin, and I am a sophomore, and I am a double major in music uh, and psychology. Tony told me he transitioned while at home doing online school. He has faced some challenges, but his overall experience has been positive. Pepperdine, I think, I think I 
was more scared of things happening when I first came here because I've definitely heard horror stories, but maybe it's because, um, I've just been lucky to find people that are like me. Um, but also there's a reason for that reputation being there. And it's like, I've definitely had encounters on campus where I've like eavesdropped on people and like, not like, you know, intentionally, but like, I've kind of heard conversations being tossed around about certain issues regarding like, um, how people were uncomfortable with LGBT students on campus. One of Tony's main challenges as a trans man on campus was with housing. Pepperdine's residence hall assignments are based on biological sex, according to an April 6, 2022 story in the graphic. So and the housing system still put me in female dorms, um, and I wasn't comfortable yet in a place where I would kind of try to contest that and be like, hey, can I get put into male housing? So I kind of had to just mill around while my suite mates, <laughs> I live in Seaside, um, my suite mates were kind of just like moving in and I was helping them move in. And then like as they were moving in, their parents would leave and then I would just kind of break the news to them like, hey, like I'm not just helping people move in, like I live here actually. <laughs> His Pepperdine email also still bears the name he was given at birth, not the one he goes by now. Tony is a music guy and admittedly not much of a sports guy. So I also checked in with another non-cis source, to get his take about Pepperdine. Uh, my name is Joseph Heinemann. Uh, I am a history major, and I'm a second year, and my pronouns are he, him. Joe is a sports fan and wrote several stories for the graphic sports section this year. He identifies as genderqueer, simply meaning he does not follow binary gender norms. He and Tony agree that Pepperdine might not be the best place for resources for trans people. In time, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, like if I was a trans athlete, I wouldn't be... I would be very hesitant to go to a small private school, um, especially just since they don't have the info, like the, they don't have the infrastructure. Like I feel like, let's say UCLA, a state school, I feel like they would have more able, like more available to me in terms of trainers and medical professionals and things like that, that would know how to, how to best support me. So that's Pepperdine. Those are the basics. The NCAA's updated policy defers to national governing bodies, trans student-athletes can compete if they meet sports-specific criteria, and policies like the one in the Pepperdine student-athlete handbook are somewhat new. The question remains, are these recent policies, rules, and laws surrounding trans athletes more progressive than ever, or are some inherently regressive? Is Leah Thomas' success a good or bad thing for the community of trans athletes. The NCAA policy does not have sole power over collegiate athletics on this issue. Remember that voice, the one I played speaking about fairness in women's sports at the beginning of this episode? Here's the same voice. We will stand up to groups like the NCAA who think that they should be able to dictate the policies in different states. Not here, not ever. That's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis speaking after Florida passed the Fairness in Women's Sports Act, which prevents trans girls from competing on women's teams. Florida is one of 11 states whose legislatures proposed and passed a similar bill. I wasn't entirely clear on the various state laws in the following lawsuits about trans participation, 
So I talked to an expert on the subject. Uh, my name is Lauren McCoy Coffey. I am the program director for the Sport and Fitness Administration graduate program at Winthrop University, as well as an assistant professor of sport management at Winthrop. Uh, I am a lawyer. I got my law degree from Marquette University. Dr. Coffey explained that these new laws, all passed between 2020 and now, and all passed in predominantly Republican states, prevent trans girls from competing in high school sports, and some even include college sports. Essentially, what those bills do is they ban transgender athletes from sport, from high school and college sport. Typically, they are banning only transgender women. Tennessee bans transgender men as well. So essentially, they're saying that any trans athlete in those states are unable to participate in high school or college sport. This would impact not only public but private schools because private schools have to to abide by the laws within their specific state. Florida's law extends to the college level and therefore overshadows the NCAA rules, which have allowed transgender athletes to compete in some capacity since 2011. The new state legislation has faced immediate challenges in the judicial system. Essentially, the ACLU and other legal groups like the Transgender Law Center, they are challenging a lot of these bills, not only just sport, but even the medical and healthcare access bills. They're challenging them as soon as they get passed. In cases in Idaho and West Virginia, preliminary injunctions allow trans student athletes to continue to compete while they go through the court system. We don't think that this law is going to you know, be constitutional and meet the requirements of federal law uh, that we have to do with this, particularly Title IX. And as a result, they, they've allowed her to be able to participate while this stuff part- uh, goes through. Dr. Coffey says plaintiffs have been successful in the limited early results, so the laws are being found to be unconstitutional. In terms of like the success with the preliminary injunctions, the athletes are succeeding at this point. One new law, Idaho's Fairness in Women's Sports Act, has gone all the way to the United States Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals after a lawsuit from a trans woman named Lindsay Hecox, who runs cross-country and track at Boise State University. So why would any of these laws be considered unconstitutional? Well, if the laws violate Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, better known as Title IX, or Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, often just known as Title VII, both of which make discrimination on the basis of sex unlawful, they could be considered unconstitutional. The various state laws that ban transgender athletes only affect a small number of trans kids, So groups like the ACLU will often sue for discrimination on behalf of those small groups of kids. For example, here are two North Carolina state representatives debating their own Save Women's Sports Act and how many students it affects. How many many students or athletes do you know uh, that we're talking about? Do you have any idea? Did you check with the NCAA uh, North Carolina High School Athletic Association? to see if they had a report on the number of cases that they may have had? They don't, they don't publish lists, but they'll tell you that there are several, I believe it's nine or ten at this point, that they're under review with their uh, top-secret committee on transgender issues. Representative Mark Brody, who was speaking there, wrote and sponsored the bill, but it did not pass. The decision in the Ninth Circuit Court about the Idaho law could provide precedent as to how these laws are written and potentially challenged in court in the future. It could also go all the way to the Supreme Court. 
Dr. Coffey says the public debate has moved into the courts since Congress and the executive branch have shown no indication of taking federal action on this issue. So essentially, the only way we would be able to deal with this right now is through judicial intervention. And even that is only really a temporary solution. So, you know, we might see some of these bills get struck down, but that means that the next day there'll be another one that'll probably pop up. So unfortunately, because this is such a, a huge politicized issue, this will continue to be an, a problem until basically people stop paying attention. But will people stop paying attention? We've already gone from one trans swimmer at UPenn, possibly all the way to the Supreme Court, and the debate has yet to slow. During my time researching this story, it seems to me that the debate over transgender participation in sports hinges on two main questions. Number one, do transgender athletes have an unfair biological advantage? And number two, are those potential advantages threatening sports in their current form enough to ban transgender athletes from competing in their preferred category? Let's start with that first question. Do they have an unfair biological advantage? It's complicated. Here's the short answer from Dr. Coffey. There's not enough evidence to 100% show that that is in fact the case. That there is this competitive advantage. Most of the scientific evidence out there says yeah, we don't know. Some national governing bodies like USA Gymnastics answer it this way. They say biological advantages are balanced out by HRT, or hormone replacement therapy. Their policy for transgender and non-binary athlete inclusion at USA Gymnastics, updated in April 2022, says, quote, trans athletes who begin hormone therapy should experience physical maturation changes during puberty in ways consistent with their cisgender counterparts, end quote. The International Olympic Committee, the most important sports governing body in the entire world, acknowledges that the scientific conclusions on the issue are fluid. In its November document, titled, IOC Framework on Fairness, Inclusion, and Non-Discrimination on the Basis of Gender Identity and Sex Variations, long name, I know, the IOC says it will not ban athletes from competing, quote, on the exclusive ground of a, an unverified, alleged, or perceived unfair competitive advantage, unquote. Translation, the IOC will not exclude trans athletes unless the definitive answer to that first question is yes. Trans athletes have an unfair biological advantage in all cases. So now we get to the second question currently pervasive in the public debate. Is the possibility of advantages enough to ban transgender athletes from competing in their preferred category? This question introduces much more humanity, because it's not just scientific, but its subjective answer will change opportunities for athletes, whether trans or cis. So I'll bring in some humans to answer it. The first is Tony, the trans man who is a student at Pepperdine. Tony says those opposing trans participation assume that the trans athletes involved are deceptive. But at the end of the day, who you are is non-negotiable, and so... The first thing that they have to understand is that when people transition, it's not that they're choosing to have an advantage or choosing to deceive people. It's just think of it as any other medically necessary procedure that people undergo, um, which, you know, obviously it's not like a, it's a handicap either. But, you know, I think 
it's so easy to to get swept up. I'm trying to think in their perspective. It's so easy to get swept up in the what ifs of the situation that maybe they're not stopping to see the what is. Let me introduce you to another trans man. This guy was a collegiate student athlete. My name is Emmett Marwell. I use he, him pronouns. I'm the policy and programs manager at Athlete Ally. Emmett played field hockey at Mount Holyoke College in Pennsylvania in 2014 before transitioning, which effectively ended his career as men's field hockey does not exist at the college level. He became an assistant coach on the team at the time and now works for Athlete Ally, a nonprofit LGBTQ athletic advocacy group. After that first semester, I realized that I just couldn't keep suppressing my true identity. So it was a really, really tough decision to come out to start my medical transition in addition to my social transition. But it was also what I needed to do to save my life. It was for my own mental health. Emmett believes trans athletes do not have an unfair advantage. Trans athletes have never been a threat. They they never will be. And there's no evidence to suggest that they are today. You know, if you're looking at um, at like rates of, of injury, right? There's no evidence. There's no numbers that support the fact that, you know, like, like trans athletes aren't actually injuring cis athletes any more than cis athletes are injuring other cis athletes. Those who disagree, including certain lawmakers, contend that the advantages of trans athletes, specifically trans women, are exercised at the expense of cis women. We believe in the state of Florida uh, of protecting the fairness and the integrity of women's athletics. Female athletes deserve the same opportunity as boys to excel and chase our dreams. Allowing male athletes to compete in girls' sports shatters those dreams and strips away opportunities that so many of us have spent years working to obtain. We must protect the integrity of women's sports. That second voice was Selena Sewell, a cis woman who competed in track and field in high school in Connecticut and now competes in college in Florida. Selena attempted to sue the Connecticut Association of Schools over competing against trans women, but the case was dismissed when the trans athletes in question graduated high school. Sewell and Governor DeSantis believe this type of legislation maintains a level of fairness that is inherent when dividing sports by gender. Their words are indicative of what Pepperdine Divisional Dean of Communication Sarah Stonewatt who is an expert in rhetoric of public controversy, calls the protection narrative. When you talk about protecting women's right to compete in sport and and women's right to be um, in that arena and benefit from it, you're maybe not on purpose, but sort of invoking that protection narrative that is undergirding the bathroom debate, that is undergirding a lot of other debates about race and sex in our society. And it activates feelings for people that they might not even realize they have. Dr. Stonewatt acknowledges that there have been hard-fought battles for the independence of women's sports, but that does not necessarily justify the use of the protection narrative in this case. So I don't think that everyone who invokes that protection narrative or, or that level playing field narrative is saying we're protecting vulnerable women in the way that we would in a bathroom debate, right? But I do think that that as soon as you start talking about protecting women, open the gate for people who have other understandings of their role in protecting women in a variety of spaces in society to leverage that um, in ways that are potentially harmful. And, and it's a tough balance. It is a tough balance. 
Perhaps that is why the NCAA deferred to national governing bodies when answering these questions. But even that decision can be controversial. Emmett said it does not provide clarity for trans student athletes, schools, or policymakers. To me, it seems like the NCAA is is removing accountability for itself. You know, it's it's putting the responsibility elsewhere in their new policy in which they defer to national governing bodies. And um, I don't think that's productive at all. The new policies will be tested as we near NCAA Spring Sport National Championships in 2022. Leah Thomas is now out of NCAA eligibility. She would not have been eligible to compete at the NCAA championships had the NCAA stuck to its new policy for this season. But remember, the NCAA decided not to implement that policy until 2023 swim season. Thomas' victory, though she is no longer in college, will not soon be forgotten. Tony, who has undergone hormone replacement therapy for more than a year, had one final thought on Leah Thomas. Yeah, like her bone structure is probably not going to change much, but, you know, muscle and fat redistribution depending on how long she's been on HRT. And the other thing just being like, again, how I mentioned earlier, cis women also have all sorts of biological advantages. And it's like, I can understand the sensitivity of if a trans woman has certain things that could be considered advantages, but it's like, you wouldn't blink, you wouldn't, you know, think twice if it was a cis woman having an advantage. And so it's like, I can see the concern there. But at the same time, it's like, is that really such a large issue that you're willing to just boot all trans people out of sports? I think Tony hit the nail on the head. Is it a large enough issue to boot trans people out of sports? It seems unlikely that sports will be restructured to be divided on anything other than gender, or that an additional category will be added for trans athletes as some have suggested. Those solutions are extreme. The answer likely lies somewhere in the middle. We just have to continue gathering the evidence, asking the questions, and find it. And that's all for this special episode of Sports Waves. This is the end of season two of Sports Waves. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Carl Winter. It's been a pleasure hosting this podcast over my four years at Pepperdine. Shout out to Arthur Poo, the founder of this show, and Paxton Ritchie, who taught me the ropes. Kyle McCabe contributed to the reporting of this story. You can read Kyle's print web version of this story with quotes from all of these sources at pepperdinegraphic.com. The NCAA Media Inquiry Center did not grant us an interview for this story, but referred us to January 19th and February 10th, 2022 press releases on this issue, which can be found on the NCAA's website. As always, you can follow us at PepGraphic, that's at P-E-P-P Graphic, on Instagram and Twitter for updates on all PGM podcasts. Have a wonderful day. Sports Waves will be back in the fall of 2022 with new hosts. So long for now. <laughs>